Welcome to the Vancouver True Crime Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm the host of the show. This episode, I'd like to offer a very strong trigger warning. I'll be talking about some very dark subject matter. This podcast is called The Stolen Sisters of East Vancouver, a history of crime, poverty, and the missing and murdered, ranging from 1960 to 2022. The downtown east side is a neighborhood in Vancouver, Canada. It's of extreme contrast to the rest of the city and especially the rest of the downtown neighborhoods. Most of downtown Vancouver has been redeveloped over the last few decades. There's lots of beautiful restaurants, trendy bars, shopping, office towers, parks, and seawalls. And for the most part, Vancouver is a pretty safe and low-crime city. But when you enter the downtown east side, it's like you cross an invisible line from the rest of the city. You enter a nightmare world just half a block away from most of the other neighborhoods. The first thing you notice is the sunken looks of their faces, the emaciated bodies, eyes that look at you, dead blank stares. The sidewalk is full of a makeshift street market and open drug use, crack cocaine and doorways, drinking people doing drugs openly using needles, like for example, like in Pigeon Park, which is a small triangular park in the north corner of Hastings and Carroll Street. It's full of pigeons, tents, and heavy drug users. The the smell of Hastings Street really hits you. It's a combination of heavy exhaust. Uh, it's a major, uh, the Hastings Street especially is a major artery of of trucks and diesel buses and and cars and and commercial trucks that are crossing from one part of the city to the next there's heavy exhaust uh diesel buses the streets are very busy everything kind of has a grimy gritty uh look and feel to it the smell of stale urine and garbage the buildings are old and very poor shape it's very loud all the traffic and lots of sirens almost non-stop police ambulance and fire trucks so it's it's a very uh overwhelming to the senses as you as you walk as i said you cross this invisible line and it's like holy fuck you know and it, you know many of the hotels are half you know health hazards themselves there's black mold problems lots of pests poor plumbing and shared bathrooms and showers, especially dangerous for the, the female residents that have to share a bathroom with the entire hotel. Uh, there's a massive pest problems. And many of the buildings are controlled by different gangs and street gangs for the drug trade. Uh, each building, you know, according to my research and talking to former drug dealers and people who lived in the area, uh, according to their testimony, each building can range about forty to fifty thousand dollars each day in drug sales. The residents of the downtown east side consume about three hundred million dollars worth of drugs each year. And you know, it's a it's a major drug pipeline. A million dollars a day is spent on hard drug sales on the streets of the downtown east side. It's worth noting, though, that many of the NGOs have been buying up some of these hotels and managing them 
bringing them up to uh, health code and building standards. And and there's you know there more and more of these buildings are being bought up, and so that that is good. But there are a lot of hotels that are left that are in horrific shape. Uh, just to give you an idea, uh, I have a friend who's a social worker. He's uh, He's been working on the downtown east side for probably about 18 years. And just to give you an idea, what he has to do each day is that he arrives to work to his office. He arrives to his office with the clothes that he's wearing. And then he has to open... Uh, up a Rubbermaid container, take off his clothes, put all his clothes in the Rubbermaid container, take another Rubbermaid cont- container with a different change of clothes, put those ones on, and then he goes out and sees his clients while he goes into these hotels. He's been doing this even before the pandemic because a lot of these hotels are filled with bed bugs and pests, and a lot of them are, are, are serious health hazards. Uh, many of these uh, hotels, as I said, are controlled by different gangs and drugs, and they net a lot of drug sales. The residents of the downtown east side do consume a lot of drugs. And like I said, it, it's it's very overwhelming to the senses, seeing raw suffering addiction, seeing women noodling. The In my observations, uh, I've worked a lot in very close proximity of the downtown east side like a lot of my offices that I worked for had an uh my uh had an office in Water Street which is in a neighborhood in Gastown very trendy full of restaurants and bars and fancy firms and IT companies and you know we're you're we're less than half a block away from the downtown east side so when I leave the office go for lunch grow, you know do do you know do stuff you have a lot of interaction with Hastings Street, and being a Vancouver resident all my life, I lived downtown for over uh, ten years plus, and most of my jobs had offices in the downtown core. So I have a lot of experience with Hastings Street, and so there's one thing I do notice is that I never see men doing this, but for some reason it seems to affect women more. Uh, especially the women that do heavy amounts of crack cocaine. They do this thing called noodling where their legs are still, but their upper bodies are just flopping around. It's almost like one of those things that, that car lots have or those mans that flap around in the wind. It, it's pretty distressing. It's pretty, pretty crazy to see that. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of homeless men. There's literally skin and bones passed out on sidewalks. And looking very close to death. I once saw a blonde woman. She was wearing only her underwear. She looked like a human skeleton. Her skin was filthy, covered in sores and street grime. And I remember being horrified thinking. Because in the media in Vancouver, they love to promote Vancouver, the best place on earth, the world's most livable city, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. You know, but it has some issues. You know, especially Hastings Street, right? So you, when you see Hastings Street for what it is, you, you then understand the level of vulnerability of these people and how they can be very easy prey to creeps, predators, and serial killers. Most people who are residents of the downtown east side are suffering from serious mental health conditions. And they also have some type of substance abuse as well. But... 
like I said, I've had a lot of experience interacting with Hastings Street and working in close proximity. In my experience, most of the people that I've encountered are harmless. For the most part, they're not bad people. They are outcasts from society, and they come from every single part of Canada. They drift here. Only about 13% are born in Vancouver. In many of my other podcasts, especially the podcast series I'd call Vancouver the Beautiful and Ugly, I kind of go into this. Um, Vancouver is possibly, you know, probably one of the more milder uh, cities in Canada. So you get a lot of people who do drift here because they think it's going to be an easier city. It's warmer. A lot of Canadian cities are very cold, especially in the wintertime, and many people believe that it'll be easier to live in Vancouver than the rest of Canada. The more violent people who end up in the downtown east side uh, are from other parts of Canada. Many provinces do not pay for them to have, to have them sent back to face their punishment. And what that means is, is like crimes like break and entry, uh, assault, maybe theft, those types of ones, they're not going to pay, like someone in, like the government in Ontario will not pay to have them transported to face their punishment. Or of course, if it's murder, rape, or something very serious, there'd be a Canada-wide warrant, they'll do that. So there's a lot of people that flee other jurisdictions because they know their province is not going to fly them back to face punishment. There was a program, I'm not sure, I have to look this up, there was a program that was based on donations and fundraising that was paying to have some of these people um, f to fly back and to their provinces and face their, pro their punishment. Uh, again, uh, knowing social workers who do work down there, and one of the other issues is other provinces have been guilty of sending their undesirables to BC, giving them a one-way bus ticket. And of course, you know, they end up on Hastings Street. Um, recently, the area has been more violent. Uh, there's, there's been more stabbing, more random attacks, and there's been more rival gang fighting over the lucrative drug turf. My understanding too, because of the drug sales are so enormous down there, Many other gangs from other parts of Canada have been sending crews to try to get a, a stake or a piece of the action because, again, you control one building, you can be making over 40 to 50K each and every day. So there's a lot of incentive for people in the drug trade to try to get a piece of that action. Again, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, I've been to a lot of different uh, cities across North America through my work. I've been to about 40 uh, cities throughout North America, mostly work-related. And many cities, of course, have inner cities. They have uh, poverty and they have, you know, drug problems. One thing what I find is unique about uh, Vancouver, which I haven't seen in other cities to this as this in your face is is this massive street drug use right out in the open most cities do have those problems but it's kind of hidden and behind closed doors where vancouver literally you walk down hastings street especially on a welfare wednesday 
people, hundreds of people, are cracking up, shooting up, without a care in the world. Again, a lot of these people who live in this area are very vulnerable, uh, mental health issues, and, you know, facing a lot of trauma, abuse, and, you know, their, their lives are hell. And so having access to street drugs, especially opiates, is too tempting for a lot of people, especially at nighttime. Was around Hastings Street at nighttime. Let's say I'm going to a nightclub, and I'm going somewhere kind of on the offskirts of Hastings Street, like like Gastown. Gastown has a lot of nightclubs. You're one block off of Hastings Street, so you're out at night clubbing. You leave the club, you walk out. You're on Hastings Street. I find at nighttime for me personally, it, it has a very dark, sinister feel to the street, especially at nighttime. You know, places like Blood Alley are claimed to be some of the most haunted parts of uh, Vancouver. There's some interesting history of Blood Alley, uh, another kind of area where there's a lot of heavy drug use and people congregate and do heavy amounts of drugs, but it's very old and cobblestone looking. And it's, it's rumored to be one of the most haunted parts of the city. There's claims of a woman all in black walking in the back alleys of Blood Alley. Over the 100-year history of the downtown east side, it's an easy argument of, of almost every square inch of those streets. Have Someone has died on those streets. When you combine the massive amounts of overdose, the drug use, the poverty, violence, the, the, the streets are literally paved in blood. You know, if the fentanyl overdose in itself has claimed so many people, like so many people, we are still in a fentanyl crisis. So we had the most deaths from fentanyls, mostly in the downtown east side, in record level. There's more people who died from fentanyl overdose than from the COVID uh, pandemic situation. So I'll tell a story, and I think this story illustrates the potential horror of the downtown east side. So I worked uh, in an office on Water Street. It was for a software company. I met my friend for lunch who works in a different office, and he, uh, he, suggested, he suggested that we go to Save on Meats. Save on Meats is a kind of an iconic uh, meat shop that also has a bit of a, a restaurant. It has a restaurant, breakfast, a bit of a pub. It's kind of a cool place, actually. When Anthony Bourdain came to Vancouver, he had a burger there. If you watch the episode of Anthony Bourdain uh, in Vancouver, he goes to save on meat. It's actually a pretty cool episode. I'm a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain, so rest in peace. Uh, it was very sad when he uh, committed suicide. Um, anyways, it was summertime, very hot, extremely hot. It was probably in the high 30s, which is about 90, the 90s. I was wearing, because I had a client meeting, so I was wearing dress pants, a short sleeve dress shirt, a tie, so I kind of looked like a Mormon with that outfit, which is kind of funny, but anyways. So we go to Save On Meat, walk up Hastings Street, it's like people are just like passed out, everyone's looking pretty rough, you know, again, people smoking crack in front of you, and it's very crowded and hot, stuffy. And we get to save on meat. We walk in. I go walk towards the back and there's like booths. And I sit down, wait for my friend. And the booth 
uh, in front of me is a woman, and she looks pretty rough. Like she looks like someone from Hastings Street. And she has a bunch of little dime bags of, you know, obviously her drugs all divvied up for her, you know, do her sales for the day. And I, of course, I pretended not to see them. But she has one of those cheap, uh, kind of those kick strollers. And there's a newborn baby in there without a blanket. No receiving blanket, nothing to cover the baby up. The baby is really newborn. I have two children, so I know a lot about babies. The baby looks like it's a couple weeks old just laying there flopped in the kickstart stroller. My friend arrived, I ordered a burger, and I'm eating, and I swear I didn't see that baby move once. So I'm starting to get scared. I'm like, does this woman have a dead baby? Like, I'm kind of freaking out, right? So I'm sitting there, I'm staring at the baby, and, and it, I, it hasn't moved nothing. It hasn't opened its mouth, hasn't opened its eyes. Its mouth is kind of open, it's flopped. And it just flopped with his arms and legs open. So I don't know really what to do, right? So anyways, and then her husband or boyfriend or whoever, the baby daddy shows up. And he looks pretty like a tough character. He has long, long hair. He's skinny, wiring, not wearing a shirt. He looks like a guy that can, you know, put up a pretty decent fight. He looks like, you know, he looked like a guy that would, you know, be violent. I could see them. They're you know, they're t- talking about their drug sales and they're, you know, making these little dime bags with, with uh, whatever dope they have in there. And, and the baby, I'm staring at it and it's not moving. So when, when my, with my friend, when we finished eating, I'm getting up and I open my phone and I put a picture of my kid up and I say to the woman, I said, oh, you have a new baby. Congratulations. Show her a picture of my kid. And right away, the guy comes and he says to her, is this guy bugging you? And before, she, and then she looked at him and said, oh, no, no. And I put my hand out. Hey, congratulations on your kid. You know, shake his hand, kind of, you know, diffuse the situation. Because all I want to know is, is, is this kid alive or not? This baby alive? And he gives me this, like, the creepiest, like, joker smile because he's completely wasted. He's been drinking like a fish. Like, while I'm sitting there eating my burger, I've watched him probably pound back about four pints of beer and a shot and he looks like he's on something else right and I look down and oh my god thank god the baby moved it opened its mouth its eyes open so I'm like oh god thank god the baby's alive so you know that's all I want to know I just want to know if that baby was alive but I'm just horrified right because obviously you know the parents are pretty pretty sketchy so then I, wa- I watch them, they, they stroll out of there, then off they go down Hastings Street, and I'm just thinking, wow, like, what a life that baby's going to have, right? So that, that's like the horror of Hastings Street. You see stuff that just, just you know, just blows your mind. Like, I I remember one time I was walking, I was at work, I was on my lunch break, and half a block from my from where I work, Cops come rolling up really hard and heavy sirens. They jump out of the car. They pull guns. A guy about 10 feet from me, I guess he went into one of the stores and he stole a kitchen knife, flashing it around. So obviously someone called the cops. I'm like 10 feet away from the cops have guns out screaming, put down the knife. I just casually just keep walking. You know, that, that's Hastings Street. You don't know what to expect there, right? But again, I want to emphasize, majority of the people who live down there are not bad people. I've had a lot of interactions with them. I've, you know, people who live, you know, who are not like me, especially if they live on the street or close to my office, I would bring them warm clothes in the wintertime. 
buy them hot chocolate, coffee, uh, occasional meal at McDonald's or Tim Hortons. And most of the times they've been pretty respectful for, to me and I've been respectful to them. Majority of the people who live down there are not bad people. However, there are a lot of bad people that do go down there. The population is approximately about 15,000. 7,000 are living in low-income housing, hotel rooms. The rest of the population is pretty much homeless, living in temporary shelters, tent cities, and various parks throughout the downtown east side. However, under these very harsh circumstances and conditions, it has a very strong community, history of social activism, every Valentine's Day, there's the annual missing march for the about 900 women have gone missing, according to their statistics. There's also a lot of dedicated frontline workers who save many lives from drug overdoses and social workers, NGOs that provide programs and help to the people at downtown east side. So there's a, a large population of very dedicated people trying to provide help and services to these people. So... And it's also worth mentioning, too, that the government of B.C., the provincial, the federal government and the city of Vancouver spend in a combination of a million dollars a day in services for the health and welfare of these people. The fentanyl crisis has caused an overwhelming amount of overdoses and social problems and death. And it's still ongoing. Many of the drugs that are consumed in the downtown east side, the crack, cocaine, heroin, and meth has now been contaminated with fentanyl and benzodiazepine to, as a cutting agent, but making these drugs more dangerous. In this series, I have done a lot of research on Robert Picton. In this episode, I'm not going to go too much into him because I have a lot of uh, writing I've done. I've written over a hundred pages and I'm going to be having a series just specifically just on the events of the Robert Picton pig farm and all the atrocities that occurred on that farm. On December 9th, 2007, Robert Picton, a pig farmer from Port Coquitlam, it's about a 30 minute drive from the downtown east side, was charged for the death of six women. He was also charged in the death of additional 20 women, many of them from the downtown east side. 20 of these charges were stayed by the Crown in, in 2010. In December 2007, he was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. It's the longest sentence available under Canadian law for murder. Following Picton's arrest in the aftermath, attention was given to a prior attempted murder of a sex worker in March of 1997. During an altercation on the farm, the victim informed police that Picton had handcuffed her, but she escaped after suffering several lacerations, disarming him, stabbing him with a knife. The charges were stayed in January 1998. Charges are stayed when a judge or crown decides that it would be bad for the justice system for the case to continue. This means the issue of guilt or innocent is never determined. Stays can be granted when the state has acted unfairly, including the failure to bring the case to trial in a timely manner. The Missing Women's Commission of Inquiry had four mandates. Evaluate the response of the police to reports 
of missing women from the downtown east side of Vancouver. Evaluate the reason for staying charges against Robert Picton in January 1998. Recommend changes regarding how missing women and suspected homicides are handled. Recommend changes on how cases are handled when they involved more than one investigating organization. In 2012, the Commission issued a final report, which includes a number of recommendations. The Commission office was closed on August 1st, 2013. Indigenous women and girls represent 16% of all female homicides in Canada, while being only 4% of the female population in Canada. Project Rescue was in response to the many violent drug dealers who were preying on addicted, marginalized women in the downtown east side. Women of the downtown east side have been complaining to police what they feared most were predatory drug dealers who conducted their business with violence, torture, and terror, and preyed on the weak, addicted, and women. An investigation team chosen from various areas of the Vancouver Police Department, including major crimes, gangs, drugs, financial crime, and beat enforcement team, target these individuals who are victimizing the most vulnerable and the most marginalized in the downtown Eastside community. One of the people that they caught was a sex offender with a history of assaulting young teen first was among the 11 arrests in downtown Vancouver. The, the Vancouver police campaign was targeting the worst of the worst violent drug dealing of predators in the downtown east side. February, the suspects were arrested through Project Rescue and faced, they faced a combined of 47 counts, including charges of sexual assault, drug trafficking, and extortion. Police said that each person had an alleged role in the exploitation and degrading the vulnerable women in the downtown neighborhood. So over the years, I have heard horror stories about these predatory drug dealers. For even for debts for as small as $10, women get beaten, they get violently abused, their heads shaved. I've heard women being pushed out of windows on top of roofs, fingers being chopped off, forced into prostitution, and just viciously abused. So basically what happens, a woman meets a predatory drug dealer who's all too willing to give them drugs on credit. When they can't pay or they're late with their payments, their nightmare begins. One of the suspects that police put into custody was a sex offender and drug trafficking, Martin Tremblay. I will be doing a standalone podcast about this creep, and I have one of his survivors who's, going to, who's been working with me for the last six months, and we're going to do an interview and talk about some of her experiences. It was her effort that helped declare him as a dangerous offender. So in this particular case, in the Project Rescue, he faced four counts of trafficking cocaine, uh, one count of cocaine possession for the purpose of trafficking. The police made a public announcement and a plea for more of his victims to come forward. He's in jail now, he can't hurt you, Inspector Dean Robinson said. We believe the only way we can guarantee that he won't harm more women if he stays in jail. Martin Tremblay was found guilty in 2003 of five counts of sexual assaults. 
Tremblay liked to use alcohol and drugs to lure and incapacitate his victims. He was released after serving only a single year in prison. Many of the women's advocates have complained that not enough was being done to protect the public during Tremblay's sentencing. He was not bound by any conditions that he stays away from young girls on their release from prison. Martin Tremblay murdered two other teens. One, her name was Martha Hernandez. Her body was discovered lifeless in his Richmond home. Her friend, Carla Lalonde, died the same day when her body was dropped on the street. Both girls died of a lethal mix of drugs and alcohol. Martin Tremblay was convicted in 2013 for two counts of criminal negligence causing death and failure to provide the necessities to life. He was labeled a dangerous offender. The designation of dangerous offender is reserved for Canada's most violent criminals and sexual predators. The Crown Attorney can seek the designation during sentencing but they must show that there's a high risk that that criminal will commit violent or sexual offenses in the future. The designation carries an automatic sentence of imprisonment for an indeterminate period, but every seven years they can apply for parole. Dangerous offender laws have root in the 1947 Habitual Act solely with offenders with lengthy criminal records and then the 1948, the Criminal Sexual Psychopath Act. And then in 1977, the designation Dangerous Offender replaced both Habitual Offender and Dangerous Sexual Offender. Changes to the Criminal Code of Canada in 2008 requires some repeat offenders convicted of three or more times of violent crimes or sex crimes to prove they are not a danger to society. Putting the onus on the offender rather than the crown makes it easier to designate some repeat offenders as dangerous offenders, which effectively can put them behind bars for life.